You're listening to Chickens Can't See Cubes, the podcast all about absolutely 100% true facts that are not made up. I'm your host, Piper Dawes, and with me as always is Christopher Parr, director of the Munchausen Institute for Totally Real Research. Hello, Chris. Hiya. Hiya. Chris has gathered his favourite facts from the Institute's activity this week, and he's going to share them with us today. How's everyone at the Institute doing, Chris? We're all fine. Thank you for asking. That's all right. I I check in on you guys. You're basically my family. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, (laughs) What's the Institute been up to? Well, our discussion uh, last week about facts and, you know, getting them inside cardboard boxes and how difficult that is. And specifically how if you get them too close together, they can merge. Yes. And it reminded me of... Are you familiar with the idea of the grand unified fact? I mean, I feel like I I am, but just for the audience, why don't you just uh, uh, remind me? Just for the audience. Yeah. So the theory of the grand unified fact is that it's possible to merge all the individual facts into one single fact that in its entirety describes the universe. Right. Okay. So what are the implications of that? Well, the implication is that it would be just a single fact that you could look at that in observing the facts, you would know everything about the universe. So, 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 so we could, what could it possibly be, Chris? What could that fact be? It's not a fact we don't know yet. It's, so if I state a fact like chickens can't see cubes, then in stating that fact, you know that chickens can't see cubes. Yeah. The grand unified fact would be a sentence or something like chickens can't see cubes, but which would contain the entirety of the universe. So it's not a single fact, but it also is a single fact because it's describing the singular existence of the universe. But but it's but all it all it is 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 that chickens can't see cubes. No, that was an example I was using, Piper. Oh, so it's not that. But what? Okay. Yes, I completely understand, Chris. Good. <laughs> I mean, I suspect you don't, but you know. You've really fucking fucked me up now, Chris, for the rest of the episode. <laughs> Should we, uh, we do a normal fact that doesn't contain all facts? Well, it won't contain all facts, but I'm not sure how normal it will be. Well, let's start with our first fact of the show then. What have we got, Chris? Byzantine eunuchs held funerals for their testicles. So throughout history, many important people and those close to power have had less than two testicles. And for myriad reasons, sometimes in order to sing higher, sometimes to show loyalty and sometimes to invade Poland and subsequently the rest of the world. Eunuchs are made to remove both their apricots to show loyalty but I've not heard of them holding ceremonies for their lost bollocks. What's the story here, Chris? So as with many civilizations in the history times, eunuchs in the Byzantine Empire held prominent and privileged positions close to the emperor, performing duties like bathing, haircutting and dressing and serving as bureaucrats. But in order to hold these positions, they of course had to be castrated. Of course, that makes perfect sense. Like to prove themselves or or something, 
The idea was that because they couldn't sire children, they wouldn't have any concerns for legacy or like dynasties. And so they would be less amenable to plots against the emperor. If they haven't got any family jewels, they haven't got any family. Yeah, exactly. So being an overwhelmingly male society, castration was seen as a huge sacrifice. Men love their balls, after all. Yeah. So as a mark of respect for this sacrifice, a ceremony was held for a new eunuch's recently detached testicles. Effectively, a funeral for their balls. What did the, what did the ceremony involve, Chris? After the operation, a public procession was held from the operating chambers to the ceremonial site outside Constantinople. And members of the procession wore special ornamental cod pieces adorned with the likeness of the, the dearly departed. And the ceremony itself was attended by female mourners who would wail and gnash their teeth and rend their clothing in abject sorrow at the loss of another perfectly good set of nads. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so they, they had this procession and everyone dressed up. It's a bit of a pageant. It sounds like it sounds almost like a like a carnival, Chris. Well, it wasn't all carnival-esque. There was a eulogy read out by a priest committing the bollocks to the care of God and entreating him to take care of them until such a time as the eunuch could be reunited with them. Oh, it's quite nice, actually, isn't it? It's really nice. So what happens to the actual the, the bollocks? The ultimate fate of their family jewels was up to the eunuch himself. Some had their scrogs cremated, either scattering the ashes or keeping them in an urn. Others might have their gonads preserved in a jar and put on display in their private quarters. A few eunuchs went further and had their plums basically taxidermied, kind of like a, a family pet. Taxidermied, as in the stuff their stuff their eggs. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I mean, I've not actually heard of anything being taxidermied that hasn't got a face. I suppose you could give it a face. Okay. Just trying to work out the implications of that. <laughs> What do you mean the implications? The implications of giving a face to a scrotum. Yeah. No, the implications of only taxidermying things that have faces. I mean, you could put a face on I don't know, a bus and then what? some taxidermist will come along and think, oh, going to taxidermy the fuck out of that bus. It's got a face on it. No, I'm not saying that like taxidermists are attracted to things with faces. I, I just mean that if someone wants to get something taxidermied, I've not ever heard of it not having a face. They've all got faces like a fox. That's fine. A dog. Fine. A little vole or an albatross. Fine. But like taxidermy, it's like a whole animal thing, isn't it? Like a whole thing. Face and the lot. The balls is just a small part. If you're going to tax... What, what good is it going to do? What are you going to do? Put it on a spike in your living room. That's going to be weird. I mean, I could argue this whole thing is weird. I don't know why you're having a problem with this one small aspect of it. <laughs> Do you know what? Fine. Very good point. So, so what, about, what about the ones that didn't cremate them, didn't have them taxidermied, didn't pickle them and keep them in a jar? Did they just bury them in their back garden or something? A few eunuchs had their giblets buried, not in their, their back gardens. Outside of Istanbul, which used to be Constantinople, the centre of the Byzantine Empire, there is a testicle cemetery 
where about 200 ghoulies are interred. A testicle cemetery. Uh, yeah, which, by the way, is one of Stephen King's stranger works. <laughs> what, what, would, what, would, what would happen in such a, such a work? Haunted testicles. Well, in Stephen King's testicle cemetery, a young Byzantine eunuch says farewell to his beloved testicles. Uh, but then in the middle of the night, he hears a scratching at his bedroom door. <laughs> Chris, so apart from all these things, are there any sort of more interesting things eunuchs have done with their removed testes? What kind of thing are you expecting here? We're talking about eunuchs treating their nadgers like a dead person or pet. So unless you have some really fucked up notions of what people get up to with their dearly departed family dog, I really don't know what you're expecting me to <laughs> say here. Exactly what are you picturing? Like eunuchs wearing their testicles like fashion accessories or playing tennis with them or a bunch of eunuchs getting together and swapping testicles like pogs or something. Well, I mean, I didn't even have to make any suggestions and already that's brilliant. Thank you. I mean, I'm crossing my legs through this entire fact, by the way, <laughs> not having the greatest of times. But I like often with uh, the facts you present to us on this podcast, Chris, you've also told us about field testing that the Institute's done related to said fact. I've got to ask, has anyone on your payroll lopped off their bollocks in the name of academic research? I know you're half joking here, but complications from self-administered surgery for research purposes is the fourth most common cause of death among academics. So this is actually a very sensitive subject. Right. So I'm guessing that's not something we're going to go into then. Um, I'd rather not. Okay. I've lost friends. Okay. So it's the fourth most common cause of death among your people. What are the other three? The third most common cause of death is mortarboard-related accidents. Mortarboard, as in the thing you wear for graduating? Uh, the second is drinking urine during funding applications. And the most common cause of death among academics is being crushed by facts. Okay, great. That brings us on to our second fact of the show. What is this one, Chris? The world's smallest nature reserve is in a cupboard. Well, there are a number of contenders for title of world's smallest nature reserve. Edinburgh Zoo contains a small shed behind a chimpanzee enclosure, which is home to several species of tiny endangered snails. Also, a village near Tewkesbury in Gloucestershire, England, is the only place in the world you'll find the Badgeworth Buttercup. So it has a Guinness World Record for being one of the smallest reserves as well. It was almost beaten by a bottle terrarium owned by a Mr. John Hartle of Eccles, which he claimed contains a previously undiscovered species of chameleon, which appears completely invisible to the naked eye. However, it was soon discovered that the terrarium was merely a bottle filled with dirt and nothing else, so it was disqualified. But what's the cupboard reserve, though, Chris? In 1993, a unique species of beetle, the neon fungus beetle, was found living in a supply closet at the Plimpton Leisure Centre and Swimming Pool in Plymouth, England. Okay, so what did you call it? What was it called? The Neon Fungus Beetle. Oh, wonderful. Great. Neon Fungus Beetles are very unusual looking. They're quite small, about a centimetre in length. 
and they have very brightly coloured carapaces, perhaps to blend in with the primary colours of all the foam pool toys in the cupboard. So pool staff were interested and understandably concerned about the nature of the beetles. Were they dangerous to humans? So they called a local entomologist. He made some observations and sent a specimen to the Royal Entomological Society, who confirmed that this was a new species of beetle that is not known to live anywhere else. So because the neon fungus beetle isn't found anywhere else, and the population in the supply closet is quite small, the cupboard was declared a nature reserve to protect the beetles. As in the insects, not the um the band. Ringo Starr is it living in a, a swimming pool in Plymouth. Right, thank you for the clarification there. So <laughs> it sounds like it's quite an exciting thing for the people of Plimpton, Plymouth. Has it disrupted the running of the swimming pool at all? Not much. The cupboard is still a functioning supply closet, but it is monitored 24-7 by the reserve's sole warden. Oh, so they actually have someone on the payroll to, to, to just to, to what do what? What do they do? <laughs> Uh, the reserve has had the same warden for 27 years. He sits on the chair outside the cupboard and has to carefully oversee anyone retrieving equipment to ensure they don't harm the beetles. Again, insects not banned. Thank you. Yeah, you confused me again. Other than that, he just sits there reading trashy paperback novels. Sounds like a good job. The only excitement really comes when he is occasionally mistaken for a lifeguard and has to politely tell swimmers that no, he can't save that drowning child. I mean, he could refer him to a lifeguard or is he like, nah, it's more than my job's worth. It's not his jurisdiction. So just going back to the cupboard itself, Chris, the beetles, the insect, not the band, are they completely safe in this supply cupboard? By and large, although their endangered status has changed fairly recently, given the the small population in a single location, the neon fungus beetle was listed as endangered. But in 2012, the species went from endangered to critically endangered after a member of the pool staff accidentally stepped on a beetle, insect, not banned, when retrieving a foam noodle. Could they not move them somewhere else, Chris? Have they only got one room, one cupboard that they could just put stuff in? Can't they just be like, well, it's a nature reserve. The beetles can have that. Insect not banned. And we can put the shit somewhere else. All our fucking floats and, and, and whatever else you have in swimming pools. Them bricks that you've got to swim to the bottom and get and the other floaty things. And just put them somewhere else. Put them at the side of the swimming pool. What else is going to go there? Nothing. It's a very delicate ecosystem, but you don't want to mess with it. So this is a thing that's happened, but do we know why it's happened? Do we know why the beetles, again, insects, not the band, do you know why they've made their home in the supply closet of a Plymouth swimming pool? <laughs> made their home. Sorry, I'm imagining a sort of five or goes west scenario, but with insects. Anyway, um, so the neon fungus beetle lives off a particular type of mould, which only grows on the type of foam used for pool toys when they're stored in damp environments, like a swimming pool. So it's thought that the beetles, insect not banned, could have been sort of imported to Plymouth with a delivery of pool toys. And any other populations of neon fungus beetles have either died out or haven't been discovered yet, making this one the only known population. 
I mean, that's that's really, really interesting. I wonder if there are any more nature reserves in strange places. Uh, what does the Institute know, Chris? A village in the French Alps has been declared a nature reserve because the villagers' facial hair is home to a species of mite not found anywhere else. Villagers as in plural, like any anyone with facial hair in that village is likely to have this exclusive mite. Mite as in as in the, the insect and not um <laughs> not the concept. Yeah, that doesn't quite work as well as beetles, does it? It doesn't. Um I just want to be <laughs> like you, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that brings us on to our third fact. What is this one, Chris? The demilitarised zone between South and North Korea once contained an adventure playground. Nice. I mean, yeah, love this. So after the Korean War in the 50s, just to give you some background, the country was divided into North and South countries we know today. The Korean demilitarized zone is a 2.5 mile wide strip of land which runs the length of the Korean peninsula. Negotiations periodically take place there in a joint security area and also apparently the construction of an adventure playground. Why is it there, Chris? So the playground was installed in the hopes of fostering better relations between the North and South Korean diplomats who have to encounter each other in the DMZ. Oh, okay, okay. So is it a a successful shared play area? Unfortunately, it had the opposite of its intended effect. Um, It escalated tensions between the two sides. Sorry, escalated a play area? Yes, the North Koreans would sort of occupy the playground in order to prevent the South Koreans from using it. Sort of like when you go to the park and there's bigger boys. Yeah, they'd hang around and not even using the equipment. And if any South Koreans did venture in, the North Koreans would be suddenly very interested, even theatrically interested in using the equipment. They'd even smoke cigarettes, which wasn't allowed. They're just bullies, aren't they? Come on, I'm sure the South Koreans can deal with that. I know generally South Korea has been peaceful in their reactions to dictator-led North Korea, but how did they like that? How did they react to that? I'd like to say that the South Koreans were more mature and handled the situation with grace and patience, but they weren't and they didn't. In retaliation for the North Korean occupation of the adventure playground, the South Koreans began sneaking in at night and hiding things in the playground sandbox for the North Koreans to find the next day. Things like feces and dead animals. Looking back to when I was a kid and the bigger boys were on the playground, I kind of wish I'd been that creative. (laughs) I just went home. I just went home. What do they want with a a playground in a demilitarised zone anyway? Surely there's playgrounds in South Korea. Couldn't they go to their own playgrounds? Not when they're stationed in the DMZ. You can't just walk off duty to go play on a playground. Just like deserting your post because you want to go on the swings. I'm going to go play on the roundabout thing. I forgot the word for it. The roundabout. It's a roundabout. The roundabout. I forgot. I'm going to go. No, fucking hell. Um, <laughs> so this uh, playground, this adventure playground, is it still there, Chris? Because they couldn't play together nicely or at all, the adventure playground in the Korean demilitarized zone has since been dismantled, which ironically 
has led to more genial relations between the two sides as they've been campaigning to get the adventure playground back. Oh, yeah, that is kind of weird. That is ironic because they couldn't play nice when it was there, but now it's gone. They want it back and everyone wants it back because it's an adventure playground. And even as a 34-year-old human being, I still love adventure playgrounds. So I think <laughs> they didn't know what, it, what they got until it's gone, basically. So this adventure playground, Chris, do you want to paint a picture for us? What sort of thing was it? Was it one of them boring ones with just like swing, slide, roundabout, job done, fuck off? Or were there more fun stuff? There was a slide, but it was one of those fancy slides with a whole kind of climbing frame thing attached to it. Do we like them, Chris? Do we prefer them? Or do you just want your slide simple and not bougie? I think there's arguments for both. Solo slides tend to be longer, and so they're better. But the the climbing frame ones obviously have more side activities. That's true. Well, I can tell you thought about this. Was there anything else in there? Was it just a fancy slide? There was a tyre swing. Cool, cool. I mean, it's possibly quite a depressing scene anyway, and a tyre swing always makes any scene more depressing somehow. Why does a tyre swing make things depressing? Well, I mean, actually playing on a tyre swing in real life, that's one thing. But, like, adding a tyre swing to a scene, that's really, really, really depressing. Probably someone's died in the vicinity within the last 24 hours. And so they put up a tyre swing in their memory? The John Smith Memorial Tyre Swing. (laughs) So that's it then. So these soldiers, they played on this tyre swing and this themed slide. And there were uh, some monkey bars, a seesaw, or teeter-totter for Americans. There were um, those animals that you sit on and they're on, like, big springs. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've also had one of those, um, you know, those are uh, those clear plastic domes that they have. Oh, yeah. Whose purpose is a complete mystery to everyone. Yeah, what are they for? I don't know. The only thing I've seen them used for is you put your face in it and somebody else, you know, hits the outside and you're not meant to flinch. But I don't think that was its intended purpose. No, I think that's just a happy accident. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you've taken the time to paint that picture, Chris. It's a very lovely landmark that unfortunately has been misused to the point of it having to be taken down. And that's very depressing, very upsetting. But are there any any other interesting landmarks in the demilitarized zone? There's a cafe. Okay. Um, It has one menu in South Korean and another menu in North Korean. That's, That's the same language, isn't it? Yeah, but the North Koreans don't want to read off the same menu as the South Koreans, so they've made two. Oh, okay, okay. Two identical menus, but one's for the South and one's for the North. Right, yes, yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, I know that there's a lot of bloodshed and a lot of war and all of that, but this just seems very petty, doesn't it, at this point? What else? There's a big hole. A big hole? Now we're talking. It's been cordoned off, but soldiers climb over the barrier to throw things into it. Like what? Just stuff, you know, bottles and stuff. Yeah, sounds like they're having a great time. And there's a treehouse, which is very popular, and it's used by the South Koreans for six months, and then the North Koreans for the next six months. Oh, cool. Like a, So, yeah, like a treehouse timeshare. Cool. Chris, are there uh, any other oddly placed playgrounds in the world that the uh, the Institute knows of? There's a playground at the bottom of the ocean. What, a playground for people? Not really, no. A tanker carrying various goods 
including uh, playground equipment, sank in the Pacific Ocean. So all the swings and slides and weird plastic domes are all lying at the bottom of the sea. Has anyone actually been down there and tried to play on it? And how would they do that? With scuba gear? I don't know. I'm not a diver. No. I mean, if you were, you'd know that the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, the pressure would literally kill you. Is it a really hard job? I'm so please don't hang up on me. <laughs> oh, I'm not proud of that. So with that we are brought round to our fourth and final fact of the show. What's this one, Chris? Osama bin Laden's laptop contained a video of his stand-up routine. Okay, so Bin Laden, founder of the terrorist organization Al-Qaeda, was by all accounts a strict father, very serious militant leader, although generally mild-mannered amongst his friends. So it's surprising to hear this other humorous side. What, What do we know, Chris? So Bin Laden's laptop was recovered and examined after his death and was found to contain a number of unusual files including an episode of the British slapstick sitcom Mr Bean, the Japanese video game Final Fantasy VII, and a video of the terrorist leader practising his stand-up comedy routine. Wow, okay. So let's just break this down a little bit, because I'm I'm not going to leave all of that and just move on. He had Mr Bean. He had a British comedy, and not just any British comedy, a stalwart British comedy, like a, a an absolute classic. So already it's like we're being painted a completely different picture of the terrorists we once knew. Very fascinating. So what's his stand-up comedy like? So the routine seems to be in its early stages. It's very rough. Bin Laden delivers setups and punchlines multiple times, trying to get the, the rhythm right. And he chastises himself whenever he stumbles over a phrase or forgets words, calling himself an idiot, one point slapping himself in the face. And at another point, he turns his back to the camera and screams, you're not funny. <laughs> it doesn't sound like he's particularly professional at this. It's not like his, uh, his other career. Conversely, um, at other times during the video, Bin Laden becomes rather arrogant and rants at an unseen audience for not laughing at his jokes. Oh, okay. So he's uh, he's actually got somewhat of an audience potentially then, even though it's it's like a rehearsal. Is he he sort of doing it in front of family, do we think, or something? Whoever he was living with at the time, yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. What sort of jokes did he tell in this stand-up routine? Bin Laden's stand-up comedy routine includes jokes about beard maintenance, airport security and jrpgs what are jrpgs japanese role-playing games such as the aforementioned final fantasy 7 right okay okay so essentially he's doing sort of it's the obvious ones to begin with isn't it beard maintenance yeah that could be like his introduction i've got a beard near airport security there's a lot of material in that you know some some satirical stuff some political stuff yeah obviously because of his background um and they're role-playing games. It's a bit of a curveball, that, isn't it? I would never have had him down as that. Goes to show you don't know someone, doesn't it, Chris? Can we hear some of this routine, then? A bit. 
despite the fact that he could definitely speak English, Bin Laden refused to speak any language other than Arabic. So these jokes have been translated from Arabic into English. Also, as I said, his routine was very rough. So this isn't a transcript of the video because that would be rather tedious with all the the repetitions and the rants and the screaming. So instead, it's just a few jokes assembled from across the routine. So don't blame me if they're a bit shit. Okay, well, I'm excited. So one joke goes, do you ever find some food stuck in your beard and think, oh, good, I could go for some lunch? Right. Another one is, what's the deal with airport security these days? Only 100 milliliters for liquids. What if my mother is in liquid form and I'm taking her on holiday? I think there's been a a mistranslation on that one. (laughs) I don't care. That's brilliant. (laughs) And then part of his routine on JRPGs went, you know how in Final Fantasy VII, the characters and enemies all stand in a line and take turns attacking each other. I wonder if they do everything like that. Do you think they have sex like that? Do Cloud and Tifa stand facing each other and select commands like fellatio and vaginal intercourse? And when Cloud finishes, do you think he performs a victory pose and levels up? (laughs) Do you know what? That's not fucking bad. That's fine. That's good. That's all right. That's all right. I mean, obviously, obviously, it's not his main job. So, you know, we can only give him a certain expectation, but that's all, that's all right. So what, what else did they find on his laptop then? Well, the CIA found something like 400,000 files on his laptop. There was a surprisingly large number of Big Bang Theory GIFs on his laptop. I mean, yeah, he seems like the sort of be a fan of Big Bang Theory, given, given his level of humour. There was a folder of holiday photos, pictures of Osama bin Laden in a Speedo. Interesting. Possibly raises some questions. What kind of questions? Well, when did he go on holiday with San... Oh, hang on. I thought you said Saddam Hussein. <laughs> what? When did I say... What? <laughs> I've just realised he said Osama bin Laden. That's who we're talking about. But for some reason, my brain hurt. <laughs> So you you thought that Osama bin Laden had pictures of a scantily clad Saddam Hussein on his laptop? <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were going to get another 10 minutes out of this episode then. <laughs> All right, that's it. You've been listening to Chickens Can't See Cubes with me, Piper Doors. I can be found on Twitter at Piper Talks and... Christopher Parr from the Munchausen Institute. I can be found on Twitter at Trilby Norton and the Institute can be found at Ray, which is M-U-I-N-F-O-T-O-R-E-R-E. Great. And you can contact the podcast on Twitter at C-Cubes. That's S-W-E-C-U-B-E-S and Facebook and Instagram at Chickens Can't See Cubes. Okay, thanks for listening to Chickens Can't See Cubes. And remember, you probably could make it up but we haven't. Honest. And we'll catch you once again on next week's show. Goodbye, everyone. Bye.
Yeah, see that 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 would have been that should have been the clincher really to to get them to play nice. A seesaw, you know, if you've got if you've got one of each, one of one North Korean and one South Korean, and they they're they're in the demilitarized zone and they're looking a bit shifty at each other and whatnot. And there's just like there's a there's a seesaw there. If anything's going to sort the relationship out between the two of them, it's going to be a seesaw because you're like, come on, I can't have fun on my own. You've got to join in. Is that your pickup line? 